Hi, I'm Elena. And I'm Yasmin. Welcome to Dissecting Disney. The podcast where we either make you loathe or love your favorite childhood movies. Welcome back, listeners. We hope you enjoyed our previous episode on Aladdin and all about POC representation from Disney. This week, we're continuing with our representation series. So, Elena, do you want to tell our listeners what we're going to analyze today? Yes, so today's episode is going to be about Mulan, one of my favorite Disney princesses growing up. I think there's a picture that I sent you um, with me kind of just freaking out when I saw Mulan in Disneyland. And I think... Her feisty character has been such a like a huge inspiration for me growing up because it kind of just told me that I don't have to be so like demure like all the other Disney princesses because I was like a very feisty girl growing up. Like I think that was a story that my parents told me how I hit a girl with my bag because she was bullying my brother. But yeah, very violent. So yeah, on the bus it was like these girls are being mean and I just took my bag and I watched them. Um, obviously that's not great, but. <laughs> That that was what I did, and I have to give this courage and heroism to <laughs> Mulan. Okay, alright, that's not the best thing I took out of it, but you know what? It helps in this day exactly. and age to be courageous. So Mulan was released in well, 1998, um, so it falls under the Disney Classics era, along with Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, uh, Lion King... Aladdin, some of the movies that we've discussed in previous episodes, um, especially Beauty and the Beast being out first. Disney didn't really focus on this movie because it was released around the same time as Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules, so the writers of this movie had a lot more of creative freedom, hence having this POC representation um, shining through. However, the movie didn't really do too well in China. It closed after only making $30,000 as China was still a bit salty. That Disney released Kundun. It's a story about Dalai Lama and if you know the history, China and Dalai Lama, not too good of a relationship. Okay, so the Mulan storyboard like originally began just as a straight-to-video production, which means that Disney was planning to release it to the public on home video instead of in the theaters. And it was supposed to be titled China Doll. It was about an oppressed and miserable Chinese girl who was whisked away by a British prince charming to happiness in the West, which is very um, white savior-esque. However, Disney consultant and children's book author San Su Chi suggested making a movie of the Chinese poem the Mulan Ballad, and therefore Disney combined these two projects. The Mulan project then began in 1994. The production team actually sent a group of artistic supervisors to China for three weeks to take photographs and make drawings of local landmarks for inspiration and also to incorporate the local culture into the Disney film. Just looking at that is a massive improvement from Aladdin, which did not include any type of consulting or serious thought into the places that Agrabah was supposed to be inspired by. And, you know, if you listen to our previous episode, it was all about the jumbling up of a few different brown cultures, which was very problematic. Yasmin, give us our 20-second summary. <laughs> Sorry, it's not two minutes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the movie is about Mulan, a Chinese girl who disguises herself as a man to be part of the army when her elderly father is enlisted. 
We follow Mulan along with the ghost of her ancestor Mushu, who's stuck in a tiny dragon body as she becomes a soldier under Captain Chang. And in the end, she basically saves China single-handedly and ends up together with Shang. Well, that's implied, not really explicitly, but... In the second movie, it happens, and Shang nearly dies. I didn't that watch the second sad. movie. I did! It was. It had a very catchy song. Um, I don't know, there was this one song that I really liked, and I kept singing it for like two months or something, and I was like, I have to get it out of my head. Yeah. Your it poor was, family. It was cute. Yeah, my, my family has to go through a lot. A lot of singing and a lot of random playing piano. The story of Mulan has been adapted and rewritten over time as it is a folklore in China. So the first documentation of Mulan is The Ballad of Mulan, which you mentioned earlier, and it was written during the 11th to 12th century, and it's a 400-word poem, which a lot of kids in school in China actually were taught and had to memorize the poem. So this adapted into the 16th century play, Female Mulan joins the army after taking her father's place. It's a, it's a long name. And there's this poignant moment of her unbinding her feet and wearing men's shoes. And it displays like the transition of roles and her struggle to step into place of this soldier role um, in order to save her family, in a way. And then it goes on to this other 17th century novel, Romance of Sweet and Tongue. And in the end, she reviews her identity to preserve her purity before killing herself, and it kind of takes a darker turn. And in the 1930s, Mulan was a symbol of national heroism. While fighting off the Japanese invasion in World War II, in 1980s, she was used to promote gender equality. And then we move on to The Woman Warrior, which is a collection of stories by Maxine Hong Kingston, who describes her life through anecdotes and folktales. And she was an Asian-American, and she uses this book to describe her life and she compares the story of Mulan with her standing up against her racist boss and the story of Mulan gained traction in the US through this book um, however there was a lot of criticism on making Mulan an American story um, and how it whitewashes and devalues Mulan as a character but this is essentially how the story of Mulan um, got recognized in Western society. That story has been through one hell of a journey. As you can see, the story of Mulan, which originated as the ballad in like the 11th century, has evolved so differently throughout the decades. And now it's gone to the point where it has become the Disney film. And again, the Disney film, of course, took some creative liberties and changed certain things from the original story. And we will now do a deep dive into that. So firstly, in the original ballad, Mulan has her parents' blessing to prepare for and also join the army. So this means that she told her parents about her idea of disguising herself as a man, and they gave her their blessing, and she left to serve for her country. However, in the Disney movie, Mulan defies her parents, and she runs away from home. She leaves her parents in grief and hardship, as I can remember there was a scene after she left when it was raining and her parents were, you know, looking out at the gate and just feeling very sad. And the movie also omitted Mulan's older sister and younger brother, who in the original ballad would have supported her parents even when Mulan left for the army. At least her parents were taken care of by her siblings, which is a very important concept and practice in Chinese cultures, having this respect and responsibility to your parents. Uh, of course, respect for your parents exists in western culture as well but in chinese culture especially it is this whole other concept um which we will get into 
uh, a bit later on in this podcast. And this edition of Mulan defying her parents is very on brand with Disney's idea of individualism because so often, just like we talked about in the Aladdin episode, an important element in Disney movies is often individualism and this journey for self-actualization and realizing and discovering what you want for yourself and that often involves rebelling against your parents. For example, in Aladdin, Jasmine straight up says, no, I don't want to uh, follow your rules to her to her father, the Sultan. The Little Mermaid, Ariel goes and disobeys her father's rule to, you know, go see humans on land. Furthermore, in the ballad, Mulan's sex is kept a secret until after she demobilizes from the army, after 12 years of service. So no one actually found out that she was not a male. However, in the movie, her sex is revealed during her service, resulting in disgrace and dismissal. And this adds to the plot of the movie and the tension build up. And it just makes for a better climax of the movie. So in my opinion, the biggest difference, and also according to about three different papers that I read on Mulan, the biggest difference between the movie, the Disney movie, and the ballad is the fact that in the ballot, Mulan takes her father's place in the army due to filial piety, while in the movie, Mulan takes her father's place due to love for her father and also to kind of seek her true identity, which is something that we saw in the song Reflection, one of my favorite Disney songs, where she says, um, she says that she can't see herself when she looks in the mirror and she's going on this journey to, of course, to like save her father from being in the sit, but also... Part of it is this whole idea of self-actualization and finding out who she really is, what she really wants. And individualism just kind of enforces that as well. That's very true. And although at first glance you may think that filial piety and the love between a father and a daughter is something that is the same, essentially, after a bit of reading, I've come to realize that it's actually not. And quoting from a paper, so quote, the reason why Mulan joins the army in the ballot is her filial piety, which is the supreme virtue of children in traditional Chinese culture. But the film implies that the reason is the love between father and daughter, as well as Mulan's quest for her true self, end quote. So the way I think about it is it's kind of like the concept of the oneness of God or monotheism. So that's kind of a universal concept that can be applied to any culture or religion that believes in monotheism. But in Islam, for example, we have a specific word called Tawhid, which is in itself a whole other concept. Like, yes, Tawhid is monotheism, but it's specific to Islam and how um, the Quran or the Hadith back that up. So filial piety is a concept in Chinese philosophy that has existed for more than 3,000 years. And there's a character for it, which, Elena, please say it out loud because I don't want to screw this up. (laughs) it's xiao so yeah that's it (laughs) (laughs) so this concept entails a strong loyalty and deference to your parents ancestors and also by extension of that to your country and your leaders so basically it's the idea of respect and devotion but it's something very entrenched in chinese culture i think the easiest thing to see as like when if you compare like western family units and chinese family units um, looking at like Western family units, you see a lot of like rebellion sometimes and looking at it, it's quite easy to break off ties with certain family members, whereas I feel like in Chinese culture, mm. um, there's more of like a holistic kind of collectivism obligation. Yeah, obligation to um to maintain and to respect that um 
those family ties and the whole idea that like blood is thicker than water things like that yeah it's um i haven't done a lot of research into this but it's just more of like an innate like dedication to your family and um selflessness in that as well yeah i completely agree so the chinese philosopher confucius who is very famous and you all probably have heard of him is most responsible for making filial piety a pivotal part of society because he argued for its importance in creating a peaceful family and also society in his book Xiaojing, uh, yes, which is translated, yeah, okay, that, um, which is also known as the classic of Xiao and was written in the 4th century um, BC, which, you know, Confucius, his teachings form a very foundational part in Chinese society. While the love between father and daughter is individual, filial piety is more about collectivism and this responsibility that you have for your family. So moving on, we wanted to explore how Chinese culture has been represented in the movie Mulan. So unlike last week's episode of Aladdin, the animators were actually sent to China for a three-week trip to honor and learn about Chinese culture, as Yasmin has said earlier on. This allows the animators to fully depict Chinese culture um, in a more accurate way and to have at least research done, unlike what we've seen in last week's episode. And the stars... Ming-Na Wen and B.D. Wong portrayed Mulan and Li Shang's voice, respect, voices, respectively. And it's great to see this Asian representation um, in a movie about Chinese culture. Uh, we, can, we can exclude Eddie Murphy as Mushu, obviously, and Leia Zalanga, even though she's Asian, she's not Chinese, who she does the singing voice for Mulan. And this representation is extremely valued since Hollywood has a long history of whitewashing Asian characters, as we can see recently with Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell and Emma Stone in Aloha. And this really shows the underrepresentation of Asian people in Hollywood. And although we've had movies such as Crazy Rich Asians that have come out recently, um, we still need this representation um, in the movie business as it's important to tell like our stories as well. We can also see this American accent bias um, as we've seen last week as well. Like why does every character other than Mushu, Mulan and Nishang have a bit of a hint of Chinese accent? Does this portray the same kind of bias to good people have American accents that we've seen last episode? Um, we can also see the Chinese vernacular Aya um, in the movie, which I thought was just a nice sentiment that he put in because um, my family and I use that quite a bit. I, I hear it a lot among my neighbors. In terms of setting, the Disney film is depicted to be in the South, but the story actually originates in the Northern Wei Dynasty. And in terms of costume, according to the style of dress that Mulan wore in the film, so it's traditional Han clothing, which is also known as a Han Fu, and according to that, we can kind of tell that the film is set in the 15th century or sometime before. As we've said earlier, the ballad was set in the 11th century. So there's this kind of mismatch regarding the costume, but it isn't really a big deal, generally. There's also a lot of um, distinctive Chinese cultural artifacts or landmarks, such as the Great Wall. You see that right when the movie starts and it kind of sets the tone that this movie is going to be in China. There's the Chinese dragon through Mushu, Forbidden City in the last part, and also Tiananmen Square, which, you know, is quite well known to global audiences, I would imagine, especially at the time. Um, so all these artifacts and locations, landmarks, have been added to 
quoting from a paper that I read, strengthen its Chinese flavor or make it very clear that this story is set in China. But on the other hand, there's also some Disney-fied elements, for example, young romance and individualism, as we've already talked about. It's been added to make the movie, you know, very on-brand for Disney, and Disney knows that this format works, right? Like, all their previous Disney princess films have had a love interest, have had uh, young girls who dream of figuring out who they are, and, you know, this might include in disobeying the par- their parents and all of that, so the formula just works for Disney. And also, according to a paper that I read, it talks about how the original Chinese culture kind of loses its authenticity and also there's a sense of cultural deformation just just because there's evidence that it's set in China. It's about Chinese people, as you can see, through the location, the costumes, the society around, especially at the beginning of the movie. However, there's also this kind of Western value being mixed into that as you can see with individualism and also this whole idea of self-actualization. Adding on to the setting, Disney also strengthens the Chinese culture portrayed through calligraphy, the dragon underlining of the name Mulan in the beginning, the opening music with Asian instruments, um, the Great Wall of China, and this sets the time and place of the movie and also embraces its culture, like what we said with Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City. However, this also begs the question, why does Disney tiptoe around the idea of Asian culture by making it palatable to the American audience? And I mean this by, it portrays Chinese culture through its landmarks and food and also like in general trying to make the place look a bit like China but it doesn't acknowledge these Chinese values like you've said before and also we see like very stereotypical things like the gong to wake Mulan up, mugu pai pan which is a Cantonese dish um, but is often sold in Chinese takeout and it's not something that's really authentic anymore. Um, we've also seen the bacon and eggs and porridge which I think is quite disgusting. <laughs> I wouldn't eat that. But yeah, so Disney tries to take Chinese culture, but it also does a lot of like, well, it does a bit of appropriation on it as well. We also see Mushu, which is a huge controversial issue that's been brought up um, over the years. So Mushu was a character that devalues the symbol of the dragon, making it palatable to the American viewers by making him pocket-sized and a comedic character. Whereas dragons in Chinese culture, they're meant to be this grand figures of prosperity, power, and luck, and downsizing it to a comedic figure wasn't something that was very respectable to the culture. Disney tends to make these comical characters ethnic, per se, as we can see this in Sebastian from The Little Mermaid as well, he has a Jamaican accent, and even recently, Aladdin's live action with Will Smith as the genie, because they thought, you know, he'd be a good comedic fit into the role. Again, just like what we said earlier, the morals of the original Ballad of Mulan surround filial piety and loyalty, which are both Confucius values. Xiao and Zong, right, Elena? Am I saying close. it right? Xiao and Zong, yeah. That's oh, really whoops. Close, well done. Okay. However, of course, Disney kind of twists the story to send a message of breaking away from tradition and finding yourself in your individual dream, as usual. On the topic of Confucius values, we see the final admonition that Mulan recites in the scene where she was with a matchmaker. And the line was, fulfill your duties calmly and respectfully, reflect before you act, this shall bring you honour and glory. This was made up by Disney, yes, and they just thought that 
this was the stereotype and idea that women had to fit in that time period. However, in the version which Disney released in China, they actually included the rights record by Confucius, which were recited and honored relationships in that way. And quite frankly, it's quite sexist, saying that like it was this whole line of the master has to guide the slave, the father has to guide the son, but it also says the husband has to guide his wife or something along those lines. It's very and on brand for that time, I would say. That's that is true. Um, but yeah, but we felt that this was quite strange because Apparently, Disney only added that to pander to Chinese views to try to portray this Confucius Mulan kind of ideal, which was closer to the original folklore rather than the heroic Mulan that we see in the Western viewing of Mulan. Yeah, and aside from that, um, Chifu was given exaggerated Chinese features with his long mustache, slanted eyes, and also bad teeth. However, the movie is set in China and shows Chinese characters, dress, architecture, and names in a realistic way. So we don't know whether Disney's like towing the line between stereotyping and just portraying a Chinese man. With research, we found out that caricatures of Chinese people in the 19th and early 20th century usually depict Chinese people with the mustache that's kind of like Chifu's. And the original story was set in the 11th century, but as we already explained, this movie incorporates costume from around the 15th century, which I guess would be before um, this type of mustache is used to depict Chinese people in general media. So Disney did do way more research than they did with Aladdin. So props to them. However, they could still do a lot more. I think the thing that inhibited the most was like the morals and having this conflicting thing, which we'll talk more about in feminism. But... I think the morals of the two different stories was something that really prevented them from portraying a historically accurate story. Agreed. So in our previous Representation Series episode with Aladdin, we saw a lot of white feminism, and we want to explore um, how Disney perpetuates that in Mulan as well. However, first, I want to quote a criticism that Mike Pence had in Mulan in 1999, where he argued that the movie was mischievous liberal propaganda that only proved that having women in the military was a bad idea because he wrote, <laughs> Many young men find many young women to be attractive sexually. Many young women find many young men to be attractive sexually. Put them together in close quarters for long periods of time and things will get interesting. So he wrote that even though Mulan's character was almost this liberal uh, feminist icon, that I know heterosexual relationships will happen in situations like this as well, which is, if you look at the original story, that is not the case. And it's just strange that he's trying to find these flaws in putting women in military just because sexual interactions will happen, which obviously is not the case. Uh, Mulan is a made-up story. It's not arguing for your stance. So, I guess this is what makes Mulan so repulsed um, by these Republican leaders, that she challenges these gender roles and she controls her own narrative. She's not your stereotypical royalty princess, but she's witty and capable compared to men. And I think that was the most poignant part of Mulan, that she is a true feminist icon. I'm not sure how you feel, Yasmin, but I really enjoyed how she was such a strong character and not um, a royalty figure as well. Yes, I completely agree with you. And I think that is so important for Disney to 
break this habit or this formulate Disney princess. However, we still have these elements of white feminism. As Yasmin touched on briefly before, we see this clash of these um, Western morals with the Confucian morals portrayed by the original story of Mulan. So the morals from the movie, like the greatest takeaways was individualism, how she seeks to find her identity, how Mulan breaks these gender roles, and familial love for her father and her mom. At the end of the movie, Mulan denies increasing in military power to go back to her domestic life with her family. This contradicts Disney's image of Mulan where she does not want to live out the gender stereotype of being a female and she wants to be independent and not, well, in a way forced into a marriage. So her morals of wanting to break gender roles and having this individualism conflicts here and this doesn't progress in the storyline because we would normally expect Mulan to want to increase in this military power because she loves defending her country um, shown in the movie. Also, Mulan's heroism doesn't negate the fact that she ultimately serves the patriarchy in Disney's adaptation. I got this from an article and I sort of agree because um, we have this character who is so courageous and wants to fight in an army. Um, however, she still serves a whole group of men and in a sense, we would expect a character like her to want to overthrow this because she wants to break these gender roles and she wants to create almost an equality in this force. And I guess with her going back to this domestic life, it kind of it kind of contradicts in a way. So therefore, by changing the narrative of Mulan, Disney perpetuates white feminism into the story by not acknowledging the traditional Confucius values like loyalty and filial piety, as Yasmin has said earlier. So originally, Mulan's feminist approach and heroism came from her patriotism to her country and her love for her father, so loyalty and filial piety. She never wanted to quit living out the traditional role of her gender, and that's completely okay. She has this internal struggle of whether or not she should stay at home and um, carry out her role as a female in the household, or to go and represent her family in, um, in the war. In the original story... Mulan's feminist approach and heroism comes from her patriotism to her country and her love for her father, so loyalty and filial piety. She never wanted to quit living out the traditional role of her gender, therefore the contradiction does not exist. Therefore, Disney's attempt in integrating Confucius morals with their Western morals as well and trying to portray the story of Mulan through a Western lens makes it difficult to avoid the contradictions and I feel that if Disney actually tried to portray these Confucius morals or try to understand more about the story, I think this would have been a better way around the whole idea of feminism. Furthermore, we have Shang in the movie who is not actually an original character in the ballad. So Shang is definitely a Disney created element in the element character in the story. <laughs> Sorry, I just object I feel like I just objectified Shang. Anyway, Shang is an original Disney character. He was not in the original Ballad of Mulan that was written back in 11th century. And the fact that Disney had this, again, is just on brand for them because young love works for the typical Disney film. Well, I don't think it disrupts the strong independent woman storyline that Mulan has, but I've read quite a few papers, and I'm sure you have too, about how in the end, Shang marries Mulan and Mulan seems just to uh, fall back into the gender roles again. Yeah, 
And if you want to portray an independent character, why do you need to portray this idea of love? Because it's a stereotypical idea that's saying like, oh, the protagonist um, falls in love. You don't need a story to end in love in order for it to be a good fairy tale. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, Disney added Chang because, again, it just works for them. But I don't think... I actually don't think it takes away from Mulan's feminism, but I guess it takes away from the focus of the movie. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I guess that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like because Mulan's already such a strong, independent character, having that romantic element kind of just, like, sets her... Because, like, the whole idea is, like, breaking gender roles. And then if you want to break a gender role, then why do you want to still include this idea of, like, oh, she still needs love? Because that's, like, the, the thing that's being painted of women. It's, like... Um, mm. They're like all actively yeah. seeking love and stuff like that, especially with the previous Disney princesses. That's true. And actually, now that you say that, I'm reminded that at the end of the movie, Mulan's grandma says, you brought back a sword, why not a man? And so again, going back to this idea that a woman isn't worth anything until she marries a man, which is very traditional. And again, poses a contrast for everything that Mulan stands for. But again, just like you said, Mulan does end up Marrying Shang, if you watch the sequel, I guess I didn't, so. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, also cut from the live action. Yes, he is, which is, um, is another controversy in and of itself, because on one hand, he isn't historically accurate, but on the other hand, a lot of people see him as, like, the first queer Disney character ever. <laughs> so, yeah, that's for another episode so apart from the movie, we can also look at how Mulan was treated um, upon post-release of the movie in a feminist point of view. So Disney made Mulan the eighth Disney princess, and she was awarded the title for her heroism, unlike being or marrying into royalty like the other Disney princesses before her. So it's great to see that um, a character such as Mulan is being commended by, in a way, being awarded the Disney princess title. Um, for her heroism and her bravery, and in a way that she's be- she's not idolized, in a way that she's being looked up to as a princess because of um, what she did for her country. However, this Disney princess title came with its downfalls. Um, she was redesigned because of this title. Her skin was lightened, and she was marketed wearing the same dress in the matchmaking scene that she absolutely hated and she found uncomfortable being in. And... This way, she's being made into more like the other Disney princesses, being made into this doll-like character, which is aesthetically pleasing. And even I remember having like two Mulan dolls when I was younger, because I loved her. And they were both wearing that same outfit, the little hanfu with the, you know, the, the long sleeves and the pretty skirts and things like that. And not her warrior outfit, which was something that, you know, stood out the most for her. And this contrasts every this contrast against the very reason why she was made a Disney princess in the first place. So I thought that it was great to see um, Disney commend women for well, fictional women for their bravery and um, aspects outside of beauty. But also, it was awful that they um, kind of objected, not objectified her, that they still prioritize this idea of beauty within princesses. And it's just, as a whole, very contradictory. To combat this, Disney changed her character page to depict the warrior that she was in the last scene when she was fighting off Shan Yu and not her dolled up self with, 
you know, matchmaking makeup and stuff like that. But this does not excuse the fact that what they've done with the marketing and all the dolls that they made of her um, upon her title of being a Disney princess. To end this episode again, just like our last Aladdin episode, I'm going to end with a quote just because these papers are just really, really good and make you like coming, arriving to a sound conclusion while Elena and I are both kind of like all over the place with our thoughts. Yeah. All our papers, by the way, that we've looked at are in the show notes in case you guys didn't know. Yeah. Okay. So quote, this case study demonstrates that Disney's appropriation simultaneously reinforced the existing racial and gender ideologies. Contrary to the overriding theme of individualism in the Disney version, the original ballot reflects the Chinese ethos of relationalism, filial piety, and loyalty, and embraces an alternative form of feminism that is predicted on the Chinese preference for the collective. Which I agree with. Um, the original ballot isn't anti-feminist. It is an alternative form of feminism which incorporates elements of Chinese culture and its preference for collectivism as opposed to individualism and includes things like filial piety. So I do think that Disney did try to westernize those Chinese values, as you can see with like self-actualization and all of that. However, at the end of the day, this is just a Disney movie. I think perhaps it would be um, just like I think the conclusion that we had at the end of a London episode it may be harmful for young Chinese kids to watch this and think that their culture isn't okay or that they should be striving for this Western idea of self-actualization. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's hard because it's a Disney movie and it's for children and a lot of these morals are quite nuanced and it's really hard for a Western corporation to display these values in an accurate way, especially if they're not established in that country. So I think it's a good step forward to at least represent Mulan and represent um, the importance it was to Chinese culture. However, yes, sure, the morals might be slightly a bit off and um, that's a, it could be quite contradictory, but I think as a whole, it really empowered a lot of young Asian women out there, including me. And it just normalized a lot of... Um, breaking of gender stereotypes as well which is I think it's a positive direction I don't know if you saw but Pippa Sue tweeted like retweeted and also posted on her Instagram a video of like basically there's this person who watched Hamilton and then tweeted to Pippa Sue a video of her daughter watching Hamilton and then it's at <gasps> yes, the helpless part yeah and she was like and that's goes, me that's me, that's me. Oh my gosh, that, I think that's so important though. It shows the importance yeah. of representation and I love it. When Crazy Rich Asians came out, I was like, trailer, I was like on the verge of tears. Yeah. I cried in the Mulan trailer. It just made me so proud of like my heritage. And, yeah. you know, even though, yeah, I've been, I don't know, in a Western society, I guess, for so long. I just, I just really love yeah. like seeing this representation and how proud to be like up there. And yeah, especially you know, at times being discriminated against for your own culture. I think a lot of people, I'm, I'm very privileged to not have experienced a lot of like racism and discrimination in my life, but I know there are a lot of cultures out there who have experienced that, so. Yes. Yeah. So what a great I'm note so to end that. on, listeners. Go yeah. watch that Pippa Sue video. It's at her, Yes. what is her Instagram? At Pippa Sue, I do not know. Should I, I think, I'm searching it up really quickly. 
Yeah, oh, it's okay. Philippa Sue. Yeah, um, and she's yeah. from Hamilton, if you don't know. I'm just, I'll just plug Hamilton, too, even though it does not need more plugging, but... Okay. Um, unlike Yasmin, I'll actually plug our podcast. If you haven't listened to last week's <laughs> episode of Aladdin, that is also a really great episode, and it also helps to understand how Mulan has been so great in terms of, like, representation compared to Aladdin and a lot of its development. Yeah, Disney's development in movie production of POCs. Yeah. Yes, and stay tuned for uh, our next and also last representation episode, which will be coming next week. If you like this little Disney rant, you can follow us at Dissecting Disney on Instagram and Disney Dissect on Twitter to keep up to date with our latest episodes and endeavors. Tune in every Friday for new episodes. Mm-hmm.